Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll jump over to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by his prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Therefore, we must pay attention. I'm sorry, we must pay cl- closer attention to what he has heard. We have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Yesterday, am I on there? Yesterday, my fourth and fifth grade boys played their hearts out on the basketball court. Um, They were beat up uh, on the floor. I mean, wounded, literally. uh, Lost by one point. Uh, But boy, I was a proud uh, coach. And uh, I left some of my voice in the gym but it's coming back uh, this morning, so you may hear some crackles and pops and those sorts of things. It's much better this morning than it was uh, last night. I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. I'm going to be popping and crackling all over the place. But now it's just kind of this deep, uh, con- constant thing. But anyway, before a game, I often will go over one or two, th- three things with the boys before they go out on the court. Things that we've worked on in practice, uh, things that they have heard and known, and now they need to execute it out on the court. And so uh, yesterday, one of those things was protect the ball. Sometimes it's box out or stay between your man and the basket. Give them these few things to go over, having their minds as they're out there on the court. And today, uh, as we get into uh, God's Word, at the very end of the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has done a similar thing. He's thrown out several admonitions, several exhortations, uh, several, in fact, five things we are called to love. And and he's thrown them out there at at the end of the book after doing all sorts of things throughout this book. We're taking a break today, if you haven't figured it out, from Exodus. We're going to be in Hebrews briefly, and we're going to look at these five loves, five things uh, that uh, he is throwing out there as a coach, or better, as a pastor, Uh, at the end of this 
a book. So flip over there if you're not there already to Hebrews chapter 13. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Many of the commentators refer to the author of Hebrews as a pastor. So we've got a pastor's heart, and at the very end of this book, he's throwing out these things, these five loves. Let me read them. Verses 1 through 6, Hebrews 13. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Verse five, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I love this passage of scripture. What can man do to me? Uh, If our strength is in him, the Lord cannot do anything. Uh, I'm sorry. If our strength is in the Lord, man can't do anything to us. said exactly the opposite of what I meant there. Um, I I love this passage of Scripture. And we're going to see these five things here that that the Lord is calling us to love. But before we do that, just jumping in toward the end of this book, let me just give you a little bit of background on the book of Hebrews. There's not a lot that we know for absolute certainty regarding this book about who wrote it or about who it was written to or about what the occasion for the writing of it uh, was back in the first century. We don't have time to go through all of the theology of the book today, but as I've already mentioned, the, if, you, if you read through this book, you will find the heart of a pastor. And so what, whatever exactly the situation was, part of what he's trying to do is to correct, to guide, uh, to redirect folks in a variety of ways. And he's doing that here at the end. Another thing uh, about, uh, as we try to guess at perhaps who wrote this book, uh, one of the things we know about this book is that it is written in a very different way than all of the other books of the New Testament as far as its style. It, It is written incredibly eloquently, almost like classical Greek literature. So it stands apart really in the style that it was written. So whoever wrote Hebrews was probably, uh, is probably not someone that has written uh, any of the other books in the New Testament. So the best guess uh, many uh, scholars have at who wrote it is a guy named Apollos. You've probably heard his name. Have you heard his name uh, here and there? It's about ten times in the New Testament. One of the things that's mentioned about Apollos in Acts chapter 18 is that he is mighty in the scriptures. Wouldn't you like that to be a description of you. Apollos was mighty in the scriptures. And whoever wrote Hebrews was mighty in the scriptures. He had an intimate familiarity with the Old Testament, specifically with the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and he quotes from it over and over and over again, showing mastery and synthesis. And, and, and so 
guy, Apollos, was known as an eloquent, eloquent man. He was known as mighty in the scriptures. And so Martin Luther uh, was one of the first guys who said, I think Apollos wrote it, and many people have followed him. And I'm on that bandwagon. I'm guessing Apollos wrote it. So that's, uh, that's our background. Uh, let's come now to the text and look at this first thing, first of uh, five things that uh, God is calling us to love. Verse 1. So the NIV, I'm reading from the uh, 1984 NIV. Verse 1 says this, Keep on loving each other uh, as brothers. Keep on loving each other uh, as brothers. I'm looking to this morning, I'm I'm teaching Greek, as some of you know, and so I'm looking also this morning at my uh, Greek text here. And it's interesting, verse 1 in the Greek text is just three words. Uh, The first word is the word the, just one letter. So we have the love, and then the verb is at the, at the very end. And I've talked with my Greek students, some of which are here this morning. Who, who is it? Is it Jabba the Hutt that does that? Puts the verbs at the end? Yoda. Yoda. I am like culturally pretty bad, pretty, pretty, pretty off. So I always have to ask them yet. It, it's Yoda, right? Yeah, Yoda. So this is a Yoda. So the verb is at the very end of the sentence. Uh, we have love, and then we have this verb uh, remain or abide or continue. And inside of that verb, the way he's using this present tense verb is is in a continuous or a habitual, a customary sense. Let this love continue on and on and on. Make it a pattern in your life. And so the translators like the NIV bring out these few other words to bring out the way that he's using uh, this this verb that is often translated abide uh, in the New Testament. Let this love He uses uh, the word for love here is Philadelphia, uh, which comes straight out of Greek into English for this uh, city that we have uh, in Pennsylvania. Now, interestingly, he could have used uh, the word uh, agape here as well. In John 13, the Apostle John uh, writes, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have agape for one another. So the reality is these words have a ton of of overlap in what they mean. And we have to understand what they mean by the context of the Bible and not by the words themselves. So both agape uh, and agapao, the verb, and Philadelphia, or phileo, the verb, can both have this connotation of brotherly love, or in this case, love for others who are in Christ. That's what we have in, in verse 1. Uh, this reminder to keep on loving each other who are brothers or sisters in Christ. And we know that this is what it's being referred to in large part because of verse 2. We have a contrast we're going to see in a moment where we're called to love strangers. So the fact that this pastor or this coach is kind of throwing out this exhortation uh, to love, uh, to love uh, other Christians uh, here at the, at the very beginning um, is, is an indication that we have a tendency uh, to, to stop doing that, to, to, for, to forget uh, in a variety of ways, or to, to stop doing that for a variety of reasons. Uh, love Christians is, is the first, uh, first point, first thing that we're seeing here. Donald Whitney, uh, he writes this uh, in his book. He says, some Christians are tempted to think that they can remain spiritually healthy apart from breathing the fresh air of biblical fellowship. There are degrees of this soul malady, ranging from those who don't go to church at all to those who attend public worship but never seek meaningful face-to-face interaction with other believers about the things of God. 
And so this is the first reminder we have to keep on doing this, to keep on loving brothers and sisters in Christ. I was talking with a family recently. They've set aside a Friday night's as the night where they're often going to have friends over, brothers and sisters in Christ, often over for dinner, so that they can keep on loving and be involved in fellowship and keep on doing this. Now, there's a variety of things that get in our way. There's a thousand things that get in our way of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, One of them that comes to mind right away, maybe comes to your mind, is our schedules. Our busyness gets in the way of loving one another. I see at least one head nodding out there. All the rest of you have lots of time in your lives and just sit around and fellowship. And a lot of us are very busy. That's one of the things that gets in the way of our fellowship. Another thing that gets in the way of, of loving one another in Christ is our, is our own sin, our own selfishness, our own uh, thoughts about uh, me living my life today the way that I want to live my life today. Many of you know uh, we're involved here at the church, several of us, with a ministry at the van. We call it the van, the What Would Jesus Do van. We take it out on Thursday mornings right around the corner here at the DeWitt Center. And we are there uh, to, to really share the gospel and show the love of Christ to people who are, who are living on the street. And when I was there on Thursday morning, uh, a brother in Christ who I'd never met before was, was, was there. and I'd never seen him before, never met him. And, and man, he was excited to talk to me while we were there. And uh, if you haven't figured it out uh, by now, I like to talk a lot more than I like to listen. Anybody else have that uh, disease? And so he is there just pouring his heart out, telling me all sorts of things. And my mind is going to my day and all of the things I need to get to. And so, again, here's an example of why we need a reminder to keep on loving each other uh, as brothers. Now, another thing that gets in our way sometimes of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, is their sin. Uh, Something uh, more substantial, something more egregious. When a brother or sister of Christ betrays us or betrays a spouse or or does something terrible, uh, we have a tendency to stop loving. We have a tendency to draw back or perhaps to draw in, but without love. Um, I've had that tendency in my own life. I remember some years ago in our previous congregation, a leader in our church, a husband, a father, spent hours and hours and years and years ministering to children and youth uh, in our church. And uh, the guy commits adultery. The guy disappears. And, uh, you know, what I want to do is uh, is bust him upside the head as I'm seeing his kids and his wife. But I don't particularly have a heart of love for this guy. I don't particularly have a heart that wants to go after him with love. I want My tendency is either to just stay away from the guy or if I see him, to let him have it for what he's doing. So there's a variety of reasons that we need from this pastor here in verse 1, this reminder to keep on loving uh, one another. Uh, One of the guys I look to a lot, I I really like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says this about those situations where a brother or sister has sinned. He says, even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, and that's the You know, ideally, we'd all live together. That's the way Bonhoeffer was living. Brothers and sisters in Christ living together in community. Some of us experienced that in college. That's what he's talking about here. 
even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life of Christians? Is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I, too, stand under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? This is the kind of spirit we need to have when we have a brother who has gone astray, a sister who's gone astray. They may need to make a course correction. They do need to make a course correction. They do need repentance, but they need love from us. They need grace from us, and we need to rejoice in the forgiveness that is theirs and that is ours. So this is the first of five uh, loves. Let's take a look at verse 2, back to the text here. The second thing uh, we see, these concluding exhortations from this pastor He says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. So a reader who is familiar with the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, as he reads verse 2, especially that second phrase, uh, for for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it, what is going to come to mind there is uh, Genesis 18 and Abraham, and Lot in Genesis 19. Don't have time this morning to go there, but these are both situations where these guys are interacting with who they think are human beings, and they end up being something other than human beings. Now, what's going on here in this verse to us? I don't think what's going on here is this is the primary motivation on why we should love strangers, okay? The primary motivation on why we should love strangers or show hospitality to strangers is not because they might just so happen to be an angel, although that's true. That's mentioned here in verse 2. The primary reason that we should love strangers is because God has loved us who were once strangers and afar. And he's adopted us into his family. And he loves us uh, very much. And so it's just central to the gospel that we love Not just those who we love in Christ, but we love those we don't know. We show hospitality to them. Now, back in the first century setting, perhaps what is going on here is there would be traveling uh, preachers, traveling itinerant pastors, and they would show up in communities, and they would need a place to stay. And so perhaps uh, that gets a little old, having somebody knock on your door, and they just show up. You don't know who they are, and they're going to come in and stay in your house. That may be what's going on. Here, but we don't, we don't have the details. What we have is this reminder to love strangers. And I'm guessing, if you're like me, uh, we need some encouragement, some reminder to do that. Anybody really gone out of their way the last few days to, uh, to love some strangers, to get after them? Some of you have. All right. Some of you are awake, too. That's good. Um, I want to share with you a story. One of my friends, uh, the last few years, close brothers in the Lord here, this is part of the church, Bud Langtat. Uh, he's in my men's discipleship group. He's in my, uh, he's in my neighborhood fellowship group. He's here this morning. I just, I just love Bud. So he tells me last week about a story, where, uh, a situation where he loved a stranger just a couple weeks ago. He's down in uh, Jackson, right? Where'd you go, Bud? Oh, you're back there. Yeah, he's down in Jackson visiting his kids and the, his grandkids. And he's at Staples, which is, happens to be one of Bud's favorite stores. Um, <laughs> Bud loves Staples. He's at Staples in Jackson. And there is a woman there who is just going off about problems with her computer. And I think the people at Staples, they just want to get her some pens and get her out the door, this lady. 
you know, but she is going on and on and on about problems with her computer. And so Bud engages this woman with his grandson in conversation about her computer. And Bud has some expertise to help this lady. And so Bud, in Jackson, with this complete stranger, with his grandson, ends up at this woman's house helping her with her computer. He had his grandson with him, so it's okay that he he went there. I got that detail in. But this is just... This is just an extraordinary uh, story here. Now, Bud didn't sit her down when he got there and say uh, to her house and say, you know, if you were to die tonight and God asked you, should I let you into heaven, what would you say to her? He didn't say that, but throughout his interaction and conversation with her, he let her know that he was a believer and this is why he was doing that and using various means to show the love of Christ to a complete stranger. So this is the second reminder that we have. Love Christians. Uh, love strangers. We've got an example of this in Bud. Let's move on uh, to verse 3, okay? Back to the text here. Uh, Verse 3, remember those uh, in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves uh, were suffering. This is how the NIV renders verse 3. So we have love Christians. We have love strangers. And now we come to verse 3. Let's take a look at it on the screen briefly here uh, in the NASB. The, the white part of the text here is, uh, is very uh, clear. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated. Now, throughout the book of Hebrews, there's a variety of, of, uh, indi- uh, variety of places where people are suffering on account of their faith. They are persecuted. Uh, we read that they joyfully accept the plundering of their property, these people. Uh, again, who are probably Jewish Christians, perhaps outside of Rome. And they are being reminded here by the, by the coach, by the pastor, uh, as he's finishing this book, remember those who are in prison as though you are with them and those who are ill-treated. That's pretty clear. What, what he means by the second phrase is, is a little more uh, complicated. Uh, so the NASB says, since you yourselves are also in the body. And this might simply refer to the physical aspect of being in a body and you could relate to them. And that's how the NIV and the HCSB, Holman Christian Standard Bible, takes it. So look at the HCSB there in yellow. It says, as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Remember those who are suffering as though you were suffering because you can suffer in your body. But it's also possible here that body uh, is, is being used metaphorically. Since you are also uh, in the body of Christ since you are also part of the body of Christ. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. And this is what you are in the habit of forgetting to doing, uh, forgetting. So remember to do this with those who are in prison. That's the way I take it. It's a minority, uh, minority interpretation. But I would link this verb with, with uh, link this verse, rather, with verses like 1 Corinthians 12. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Uh, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So we have a reminder here to love sufferers. Love sufferers. Now, when we read a passage like this, one temptation we might have is, well, we don't have anybody from from Northern California that's in prison because of the gospel or because of their faith, and so this doesn't really apply to us. So we want to back up. 
And we want to say anyone who is suffering, whether it's uh, cancer, whether it's because of righteousness sake, whatever it is, we, we have a reminder here to enter in and remember to love those who are suffering. And the reality is that we do suffer, not as the Hebrew Christians did, but we do suffer on account of our faith. We do suffer. Uh, it often comes in the form of mockery or of, of being excluded, or it, it comes in a variety of ways. A few weeks ago, um, I, I had a report from a teacher at school about a situation. Um, it's in the library, and uh, the kids, there's a bunch of kids in the library at school. They uh, are spread out. There's teachers in there. There's a variety of people uh, in there. But the kids uh, you can find their way to not be near the teacher. And so some of the kids have found, uh, you know, got to, got to the stand that has the big dictionary on it. And they're looking up uh, words that don't exactly fit into the category of true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Next one, uh, some of you have done this, right? Some, some of you have, have done this or might remember this when you were kids. And so they're, they're looking up some uh, words that they shouldn't be looking up. The librarians and teachers are in other places. They're not observing this. And one of my children uh, comes uh, near this group and says uh, to them, you know, uh, something along the lines of, this isn't something that's, that's going to honor Jesus. Uh, what, what, what's going on here? And, and just as he's uh, doing that, or just before he was doing that, a teacher was walking by in the hallway, and instead of intervening immediately, decided to just stand uh, outside the hallway and, and listen to uh, what's going on. And what transpired is those group of kids around the dictionary uh, started to, to mock or, or, or call uh, one of my uh, children a Jesus freak for uh, trying to redirect uh, what is going on. The reality is, if we are living boldly for Jesus Christ, the Bible says, in fact, all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. And what we are called to do as part of the body of Christ, whether it's on righteousness, for righteousness sake, or whether it's cancer, or whether it's just some mysterious providence where a brother or sister is just suffering and miserable, and, and we don't know why, we have a reminder here to enter into that suffering to enter in with them, to, to love them, to sit with them, to be with them, uh, to, to, to endure with them. So this is, this is the third uh, reminder that we have. The third thing that we have uh, to love. Love Christians, love strangers, love sufferers. Uh, let's move on uh, to verse 4. Uh, we're going to see here in verse 4 that we're called to love marriage. So take a look at the, your Bibles with me again. Two more here. Marriage should be honored by all. For God will judge the adulterer immoral. Marriage should be honored by all. The, the phrase that stands out here for me in, in the beginning of, of verse 4 is this phrase, by all. Uh, marriage is not just to be honored by those who are married. Marriage is to be honored by uh, widows, by the young people who've never been married, by divorcees. Uh, marriage is to be honored by all. And there's a reason for this. Marriage, end of Ephesians 5, we learn at the end of Ephesians 5 that marriage, uh, going all the way back to the garden, all the way back to Adam and Eve, that marriage 
is, is a pattern or a, a parable, uh, a picture of Jesus' love for his bride, the church. That's what marriage is. And so marriage, for us as Christians, is to be a, an example of, uh, of modeling the kind of sacrificial and exclusive and a beautiful love that Christ has for the church. That is what marriage uh, is all about. And so we are reminded here uh, to honor marriage, whether we're married uh, or, or not. So a couple points about honoring marriage, how marriage should be honored by all. But teenagers and singles need to identify godly marriages and watch those marriages. Watch them closely. Observe them. And hopefully, if you're a young person, that marriage is the marriage of your mother and father. But that may not be the situation. That wasn't the situation for me. My father left when I was around four years old. So I needed to get somewhere else. And when I came to know the Lord at 16, there was Mr. and Mrs. Hewlett. And they were the marriage model where I didn't know this verse. I didn't have, hadn't read this reminder. But this is where I learned what marriage was about, watching them. And this is where I learned that marriage is an honorable thing by watching this husband, life, husband and wife in this beautiful uh, relationship where, where uh, they love one another. Uh, in our home, we, uh, we celebrate birthdays with my wife's uh, sister who lives in Cool. There's uh, seven in her family, five in ours. So we've got 12 birthdays, so we get together a lot. We have done this over the years for many years. And one of the practices that we have is affirming that person whose birthday it is. And so if it's uh, Uncle Daryl's birthday, my kids will often say, you know, I like Uncle Daryl because, and when they were younger, they would say things like, I like Uncle Daryl because we, he drives the ski boat and we're in the back of the tube and he, he pushes us really fast, but not too fast that he kills us. You know, um, and so they would say things like that. But when it was Aunt Debbie's birthday... Uh, we looked forward to Uncle Daryl affirming his wife and saying what he liked about his wife. And over the years, his children and our children have heard uh, Uncle Daryl, with his humor, uh, talk about how he got the pick of the litter, the five daughters of whom my wife is one of, and he got the pick of the litter. And he uh, would talk about how much he loves his wife and how beautiful she is, not just how beautiful she is, physically, but that she's up early in the morning uh, in her Bible. And he would often uh, sometimes uh, maybe not tear up, but he would, you would see the, the repentance on his face that my wife is up early in the morning in her Bible every day, and I'm not. Our children, Lord willing, have grown up in our home seeing marriages that, that are honored, uh, seeing husbands who love their wives and guard their wives and protect their wives and and love their wives, and cherish their wives. And if you don't have a close-up opportunity to see uh, a marriage like Uncle Daryl and Aunt Debbie have, then you need to find one, and you need to spend some time uh, in that home. Uh, you, need, uh, you need to identify godly marriages and watch them, really, no matter what your, uh, no matter what your age. Uh, how do we honor marriage? Husbands need to be men that follow God's word, not pop culture's cues, in how to become a man. Um, media is very powerful. 
And although I may be clueless on, on some of it, I still see the, the, the uh, James Bond movies and uh, Jason Bourne. This is not where we learn how to be men, right? Right? We, we, are, are you guys awake today? We, we, we don't learn how to be good husbands from the movies. We learn how to be godly husbands by saturating our minds with the passages of Scripture that speak to us about what it looks like to be uh, a godly husband. This is a way that we uh, honor marriage. Uh, In his book, Desiring God, John Piper writes this. He says, where a man belongs is at the bedside of his children, leading in devotion and prayer. Where a man belongs is leading his family to the house of God. Where a man belongs is up early and alone with God, seeking vision and direction for his family. These are ways that we honor marriage. And these are uh, reminders that we have here at the end of Hebrews. Uh, A third uh, thing, I've already touched on this somewhat, how we honor marriage is husbands and wives make your marriage your number one priority uh, after Christ. And I, I maybe could have or should have worded that a little differently. I've already talked about the theology where this is coming from. Our marriage relationship is like no other relationship on the planet. It is the most important relationship we have, human relationship, apart from our relationship with Christ. We don't make vows to our kids. They grow up and they leave. Do I get an amen on that? (laughs) Um, No, that's a hard process. We're watching my sister-in-law go through that right now. That's a hard process. They grow up and they leave. I'm being serious. Our spouse, the commitment to our spouse is an until death kind of commitment because it is reflecting Christ's love for his bride, the church. It is a sacrificial kind of commitment. It is a permanent one. It is one that we have to put walls around and protect and guard and defend. And it is a relationship like no other that we have. This is how we honor marriage. So let's look uh, briefly at the second half of this verse. I've been just talking about the first half of verse 4. Back to verse 4. It says, uh, the marriage bed should be kept pure. The marriage bed here is a euphemism for intimacy in marriage, and it should be kept pure. If it's not, this is what happens. So we have a contrast between the first half of the verse and the second half of the verse. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So we have these two terms, one referring to sexual sin for those who are married, adulterer, one referring to sexual sin in this context, in, in verse 4, referring to those who, who, who aren't married. That translations in the, uh, translations in the past would translate uh, fornication or whoremongering, is how the King James put it. And we've had a little shift in clinicizing this word, haven't we? This word pornos in uh, ESV and NIV sexual immorality doesn't quite carry the weight that uh, fornication has what what's going on here when it says uh that there will be uh that there will be judgment uh i can't read this without putting them back on uh for god will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral flip back a page or so to chapter 12 and verse 5 hebrews 12 and verse 5 and you, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons or as sons and daughters in Christ. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves 
and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Here, this word punishes is a very strong word, a translated scourges in the King James NASB ESV, chastises, flogged in the Gospels. This is strong discipline. discipline for a son. Back to verse 4. What is going on in verse 4? And that forgiveness, Mr. Adams spoke about at the very beginning of the service. No matter what kind of sin that we have engaged in uh, this week, this last year, these last few decades, the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of that. And we are forgiven. But sometimes there is judgment that comes in order to bring that repentance and that new way of life about. And that process of discipline is painful, and that's what the second half of verse 4 is talking about. So we've looked at loving Christians, loving strangers, loving sufferers, loving marriage. And then the final, uh, the final uh, thing we have here is loving what you have. Let's look briefly at verse 5 and following. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So back in verse 5, we have first this negative thing, keep your lives free from the love of money. We have this, this instinct within us to covet what we don't have. Whether it's money, whether it's cars, whether it's house, whether it's mountain bike, whether it's uh, you know, uh, a new iPad, the new phone that comes out. We, we have these tendencies. And we have this reminder from this, this shepherd, from this pastor here telling us, to keep our lives free from all that and to be content with what you have. To love what we have. You know, one of the verses of Scripture that I have to preach to myself constantly is 1 Timothy 6 and verse 8, uh, which says, If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. What has God promised me in this life? He has promised me food and covering. Food and covering, and I have got so much more than that. And so this is one of those verses, as we read through the Bible, the Holy Spirit should bring verses to your mind where you go, this is one that I need to preach to myself so that I can learn to be content with whatever I have and not have phone envy or full suspension mountain bike envy or the leather basketball that the other team had envy for their game ball or I could go on and on. Some of you could probably come up here and add things to uh, these lists forerunner envy, uh, getting rid of your forerunner uh, envy, and so on. So we need to learn to love what we have. We need to learn to love what we have. Uh, We'll finish up here with a word about this from uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He writes this, he said, The world is infinitely deceived in thinking that contentment lies in having more than we already Here lies the bottom and root of all contentment. When there is an evenness and proportion between our hearts and our circumstances. That's the prayer of our hearts right there, that sentence. Here is the bottom and root of all contentment. When there is an evenness between my heart and my circumstances. When there's an evenness between what I have and 
what I want. What I want is what I have. There's an evenness there. This is why many godly men who are in low position live more sweet and comfortable lives than those who are richer. This is the kind of people we want to be. We want to be godly men, whether we are in low or medium or high positions, that we live sweet and contented and peaceable and rich lives, not because of the things we have or don't have, but because our God is never going to leave us. He is never going to forsake us. He is our greatest treasure. He is my helper, so I don't need any fears or anxieties in my life. And man can do nothing to me. That is the kind of people we want to be. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, we thank you for the words of this pastor. We thank you for these reminders at the end of Hebrews of how we are to live, of these five things that we are to love. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to love other believers, to love strangers, uh, to be content with what we have in this life. And we ask that the Lord Jesus would increasingly be our greatest treasure and that we would, in a sense, live untouchable lives because of our faith in him, that our lives would be full of peace, anxiety would be pushed out, coveting would be pushed out, We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.